0: Part of what you're trying to do as an entrepreneur, what I learned, is you're trying to predict usually about two to three years in advance. Your ideal circumstances where the market hasn't realized it, your average person hasn't realized it, but two to three years from now, the market and the technology and the platforms will all be ready and you start running early at it so that when it starts blossoming, you're there for it.
1: There is no one in Silicon Valley who's more connected than Reed Hoffman. That might be because he plays all of the connector roles, sometimes at once. He's a venture capitalist at Greylock. He's an entrepreneur who co-founded LinkedIn and sold it for $26 billion last year. Reed's net worth is estimated to be north of $3 billion. Now he has a seat on the board of directors at Microsoft. After teaching a class at Stanford, Reed started a podcast, Masters of Scale, that's about the art and craft of building monster businesses. Reed is deeply qualified on that subject. He was a founding board member at PayPal and early on became its chief operating officer. That also makes him part of an eclectic group of characters known as the PayPal Mafia, former PayPal employees who went on to dizzying success. Members include Elon Musk, YouTube founders Steve Chen and Chad Hurley, investor Peter Thiel, and entrepreneur Max Levchin, just to name a few. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast: Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's Podcast app, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play. Tell a friend. I spent some time with Reed Hoffman last week when I flew out to San Francisco to moderate a debate. It wasn't politics. Reed was debating his friend, Tim O'Reilly, on the merits of spending gobs of investor money to build startups into dominant forces. You can watch that debate on Twitter, look up my profile at John Fort, that's J-O-N-F-O-R-T-T, or head over to YouTube and watch at the Fort Knox channel. After the debate, Reed sat down with me on the 17th floor of LinkedIn headquarters to talk about how he scaled from a preteen who was ambivalent about school into one of tech's most prolific builders. Here's Reed Hoffman. Reed Hoffman, thanks for sitting down for the Fort Knox podcast. You're no stranger to podcasts. You've you got Masters of Scale, which is your own, which is appropriate because not only were you um, founding board member at PayPal, early COO, also co-founder of LinkedIn. You're now on the Microsoft board. Why are you doing a podcast?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, everyone's smart doing podcasts. So. Um, <laughs> It's actually – it was a fairly funny and and quirky and fun origin story of this, which is – I taught a class at Stanford called Blitzscaling. It's the book that I'm now working on, which is the 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 why is Silicon Valley successful is actually not startup scale-up, and it's in particular Blitzscaling. Because the startup story, which we can go into, is true but radically insufficient, and it's the scale-up and the Blitzscaling story – so June Cohen, who's the former executive producer of TED, came to me and said, hey, I think this could make a really good podcast. I actually truly hadn't thought about podcasts. And I was like, well, June's awesome, and she's uh, magical in the creativity, and she assembles great teams. So sure, since I'm working on this book, I'll do this Masters of Scale podcast too. And, um, you know, when we uh, listened to the first uh, episode, I was like, oh, you're really creative. That's great. <laughs>
1: Um, scaled businesses lead to public companies and they end up with valuations. And right now, we're at a point where some of those are getting pretty rich. When you look at that from your investor side of things and from, I guess, your, your board side of things at Microsoft, are we at a healthy point right now or are we coming off of a healthy point or getting to one? Where are we?
0: So it's super difficult to actually make that call intelligently. It's one of the reasons it's a good question. And the reason is... As you get to more and more of a networked world, we get to uh, larger and larger companies. And, like, one of the things that's been interesting, if you contrast the top five most valuable companies now versus 10 years ago, 10 years ago was more oil companies. Now it's more tech companies, Mm -hmm. right, in terms of how the whole thing works because they benefit from this kind of global scale in a networked world. Like, oil companies have always benefited from global, but as the technology happens. And so then you get to all these other valuations, and the question is, well... Are they going to be one of these huge, ginormous companies that benefits from the network world? And what's the risk discount to that? So if you say, well, high probability to, than they are, then they're probably undervalued. Huh. Moderate probability, then they're probably valued appropriately. And low probability, they're probably overvalued. And so it gets down to a company-per-company company decision. Now, what it does mean is probably most of the valuations are probably too high. Right? because only a small number will be define the next platforms, the next major tech companies, and so forth. And so when that risk-adjusted bet, if you said I took a portfolio of 100 of them, you know, probably 90 or something are overvalued, and 10 are undervalued, <laughs> or 5 are undervalued, and that's the, that's the challenge for being a professional venture capitalist, investor, and so forth, in trying to discern those companies.
1: Your podcast is about how companies scale, largely. Part of what Fort Knox is about is how people scale. So I, I think it's interesting in late elementary school, junior high, you weren't always that interested in school. What What was your path from that point yep. to becoming really focused on learning what you could and what you were going to be able to build?
0: I think for me, uh, initially, I wasn't sure what the learning point was too. So all the way until I got to high school, I was kind of like, uh, school felt more like jail it 's like more like okay i 'm told I have to be here i 'm told I have to do this thing it 's not unpleasant, but i 'm not really sure why i 'm doing it
1: bad grade in french
0: uh, terrible grade in French actually I think. Uh, I think I might have gotten an f in French actually maybe the f i think the f i 've received in my in my in my lifetime um, and uh, and basically, what happens once I started realizing, oh, I want to build that I want to accomplish that I want to Participate and help in that kind of mission and that kind of project. Oh, this learning helps me do that. Mm. And once I made that connection, I got very focused on learning.
1: What was your first job that maybe helped you see what you could contribute? Uh,
0: was probably it was probably interning at Xerox Park, mm. um, and it was the because. Uh, uh, Park, which was then uh, being run by John Seeley Brown and Brian Cantwell-Smith.
1: And this is the famous Palo Alto Research Center that came up with the graphical user interface but couldn't figure out what to do with it. Steve Jobs and his team come in, see it, and go, oh, my goodness. Yes. And it's the roots of the Macintosh.
0: Exactly. And so I started putting my – because being at Park, I started putting uh, my thinking to the problem of how do you both do this kind of research and development – and then actually build it into businesses. Mm. And what's the way, or, or build it into deployed technology that affects the whole world. And I hadn't really started thinking about that intersection between just thinking about the technology and building the technology until I was interning uh, there that summer.
1: Where does that human experience part? Come in as, as a young person, you were into games, right I think there 's a story you 've told about how, at age twelve, growing up in Berkeley, you actually got named credit uh, in a Dungeons and dragons variant game i 'm a kid who was into D and D at age seven, eight for, for example. What is it about you, the way your mind works, the way you look at problems, that that kind of a, a role playing game experience kind of resonated with.
0: Right. So it was both uh, role-playing games, which was kind of the question of human narratives, the story, uh, how do you actually have kind of a heroic quest, which is one of the things about D&D and RuneQuest, which was the variant I was, I was playing and involved with. Um, and then also I played a lot of board games. Uh, and actually when I'd been asked about why it is that I am unusually good at strategy, a lot of it actually comes from the board game side, huh. a little bit less the D&D side.
1: Which board games?
0: Uh, basically every Avalon Hill board game that was <laughs> made, I played. <laughs> right? So it was, the, it was the whole range. Uh, the classic one to learn on is Tactics 2. Huh. <laughs> right. But the, um, uh, but it was the extensive question of, of how do you have a multivariant, multi-phase strategy, When it's person-on-person competition, how are you playing against the person? One of the benefits to the board games versus chess and go is how do you have a configurable strategy against some randomness? So, For example, when you're doing dice rolls to determine Um, whether a particular conflict will go your way or not, and you have a higher percentage because you've organized a strategy the right way but not 100%, you have to have fallbacks for when that doesn't work. And that's actually important in the real world. The real world doesn't work like chess, doesn't really work like go. It has a lot of uncertainties and a lot of epistemological blindnesses to it. And you have to configure your strategy that way. And that's the reason why that part of the strategy – was kind of core to how I started thinking about tech strategy and business
1: strategy. Gathering the hard way, if you're not a ranger with a sort of sharpness going up against the lich, you need a backup plan. Yes, That's, that's always always true. Paladin would be much better. Oh, a pa- see, that, I guess that's yes. a backup plan. You've got to yes. have a paladin in your party. Um, when you went then to boarding school uh, as part of your high school uh, experience, but your family was big public school advocates. How did, how did that happen? And did, did, you went across the country?
0: Yes. So first, um, I applied for and got into a boarding school called the Putney School in Vermont without my parents knowing, <laughs> and then persuaded uh, them that I should I should go there.
1: Now, this is before the web, right? So how yes. do you get an application to a boarding school without your parents knowing?
0: Well, I, a friend of mine had said, Oh, I'm going to boarding school. And I went, ooh, that's a good idea. Because I got <laughs> the independence gene a little early. Okay. Right? And so I was like, And so. So I, what you
1: know, are you, 13? 12?
0: 12, I think. I have to go back and check. And so you mail for the application. You get the application. You fill out the application. Uh, I had enough money from working on uh, RuneQuest and other things to pay for the fee, to send the thing in, got accepted, and then went and and started pitching uh, my dad principally on, on paying for it. And because I'd done that, I was actually open to coming back to California. Uh, for school. I think if I hadn't done that, I would have gone to the East Coast or somewhere else for school.
1: Oh, so you didn't actually go to the school in, was it Vermont? Or? It was
0: in Vermont. I went to high school in Vermont. Oh, and you that did, was, okay. And because I went there, I was open-minded to coming to Cal, Stanford, etc. And then, my whole family is Cal graduates. Uh, my dad, my mom, you Used to be my grandfather, my grandmother, right? It's it's this is the whole family, and they are legitimately and and, and greatly uh, uh, advocates of what public universities and public education means for the greatness of the country, and they're 100 percent right. And so when I said, well, I want to go to Stanford, there was this whole kind of firestorm within the uh, within the family about is public school is he too good for public school? Why isn't he going to public school? And and frankly, it's know your own strengths and weaknesses. Mm. And uh, I thrive much better in small classroom environments. I thrive much better when I can connect with a teacher. Uh, and so uh, one of the disadvantages of public schools, they tend to be large. And you tend to get lost in, in in large lecture classes. And some people can thrive in that and be totally good. I'm less good in that, and that was part of the reason why, that was part of the logic of going to Stanford.
1: At uh, colleges and universities right now, we see a lot of cultural uprising that's happening in Silicon Valley as well. When, when you look at uh, various ethnic groups, uh, when you look at women rising up and saying, hey, hey, wait a second, the system as it works right now, whether it's in public universities or in Silicon Valley on Sand Hill Road with venture capital, isn't working for us. How do you think that's likely to, to, to play out? And where should we be focused in all of this maelstrom? What factors should we be focused in on in figuring out how we get through it?
0: Well, it starts with an important thing where we do not have a sufficiently equal and just society, and a simple way of looking at that is, for example, in the criminal justice system, we have more uh, African Americans in prison than were under slavery. right we, uh, You can look at a variety of deeply researched and one hundred percent accurate things where uh, the sentencing is higher, especially on things like marijuana offenses and everything else, that just creates an unbalanced society. And it's across the board. It isn't just in education. It isn't just in venture. There's a set of things. And so you have to start with a recognition that we are, in, we are not yet the, the meritocracy we want to be. We are not yet the diverse and inclusive society we want to be. And we should all work towards that together. Start there, mm. right? And anyone who disagrees with that, I am happy to cross words with, going back to the D&D uh, analogy. Then as you get to specific, you go, well, what's the right technique in order to make that work? What are the right kinds of things in order to, to, to make that happen? In an venture and in, in that kind of industry, you want to have a more diverse investing set. You want to have a more diverse set of portfolio companies. If you say, well, they're not yet – the pipeline isn't yet there, then work on the pipeline. Right? Then they don't go, oh, the pipeline's not there, not my problem. Go, okay, fine. You think that's a problem? Work on the pipeline. Right. So take steps. Act on it. Uh, within the uh, – I think we've made more progress in the educational uh, side. I'm not saying there isn't more to be made, but we've made more progress. And, you know, you already begin to see, uh, you know, like one of the things I think is kind of entertaining – is you may need affirmative action for men because women are generally better at being students in school when you get, begin to look at the admissions of the elite universities <laughs> and so forth. And I find that, you know, uh, ironic, <laughs> right, but good. Uh, and you kind of go to, all right, what's the right way that we make sure that uh, not only are the admissions happen the right way, but the, the outcomes are. And so, like, one of the programs that I... Uh, I'm an advisor to and try to help is called QuestBridge which is how do you get essentially high talent low income kids Uh, and it focuses on low income doesn't focus on race and gender Mm. but it ends up helping race and gender a lot uh, get into elite universities because elite universities tend to be a pathway to future opportunity and it's part of how when you get the role models and the powerful and the wealthy that kind of tends to help uh, balance out the society more. So, you, you work on those kind of things as well.
1: That, that's interesting you bring up the, the culture issue. I worked for a while in Kentucky and got to spend some time in Appalachia, and it was an eye opener for me because some of the same dynamics that I had seen growing up so much defined as racial, there were not. You know, people from Western Kentucky or Northern Kentucky looked down their nose at Eastern Kentucky when they heard the accent right? And it was the same. I, I saw it playing out various ways. People from Indiana told jokes about people from Kentucky. And people from Kentucky told the same jokes about people from eastern Kentucky and West Virginia. There's kind of this cycle of um, discrimination. But on the, on the culture question, it's not necessarily just much about, as much about gender or race sometimes. It's about knowing how to operate the norms within an environment, how to behave. Even smart people. Talented people can have trouble overcoming that. How do you do that in Silicon Valley?
0: So I think part of what you do is you need to say, well, if you're a leader in Silicon Valley, and I try to exemplify this, I try to do what i re- much just about to recommend, which is make sure that you're putting energy into helping the right high-talent, diverse individuals learn the culture, whether it's anything from Doing podcasts or other things to mentoring or teaching classes or you know, sometimes at Greylock will we'll assemble a group of students and we'll talk to them. And we try to we try to make sure, and Greylock does let like communities around product design and infrastructure scaling and growth hacking, and all that, And we try to make sure that those are diverse and inclusive, right? So that you go, okay, you this is the way you learn it, right? <laughs> by by participating, by being part of the network, by being part of the community. And it ranges everything from one-on-one mentoring to inclusion in the small groups and the events that make these things happen.
1: Tell me about, back to talking about business and ideas, the timing and ideas. You had the idea for a social network way before it was time to have at least monetizable ideas about, about social networks. What did that experience of having that idea, seeing it maybe not scale to the level you had hoped, and then seeing Facebook come along. What, what, what did that teach you?
0: Well, so I was lucky in that I, I, I have always been kind of of the mind that uh, reconfiguring how we communicate, how we identify each other, how we work with each other, how we, how we live together, how we play together, was one of the key things that would help transform human
1: destiny. Hmm. And so, why, why did you always have that idea? That's kind of a big idea to have. Well, it was at.
0: roughly speaking like when I decided not to be an academic, which was, was at Oxford, to come back and be a builder of software.
1: Hmm.
0: It was what I cared about is how we evolve as individuals and as a group, all the way to the entire group of humanity. In which case, you said, well, what's the things that uh, that make that happen. Now, my initial idea was not a particularly great idea. My initial idea is, oh, you can create a new personal information manager. Remember what those are, <laughs> right? right? And that can help configure people's worlds and how they thought about people. Uh, we'll we'll start with that. And then, it was Tim a, uh,
1: was like, what, "What the Palm Pilots did? Yes, addresses, emails, exactly, right, phone numbers."
0: And that was the initial idea. And then I went, "Oh my gosh, no, no, no! It's going to be online. It's going to be the internet." So I abandoned that idea very quickly, thinking it's actually, in fact, this this system, this metaverse that we're all in. That actually in fact isn't cyberspace isn't a separate, like we go to cyberspace, no it's actually in fact in our lives around us it, hmm. it, 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 it's more like the Star Wars force, right, it's kind of more like it it, it it connects us together, it binds us together, we operate within it and and so I had that uh, insight, not uniquely but very early and my first startup I learned all the startup mistakes I learned, oh actually in fact you have to build distribution into your plan you have to think about uh, what is the the path by which you create differentiation and rapid scale, all those kinds of things.
1: And, what year was that? Uh,
0: that was uh, 97 okay. is when I started.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, it was called uh, relationships.com first and then social net. And I had the benefit of I was essentially given a mulligan because the, 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 the Internet wasn't fully ready for these identity platform networks. And so when I learned all this stuff, I could go again, and that's part of what enabled LinkedIn to happen
1: in between LinkedIn and um, Relationships.com, PayPal. Mm. You were part of the PayPal mafia, which is what we call people like you, Elon Musk, uh, the YouTube guys who who came out of that really pretty phenomenal uh, group of people. You've also said that because of your PayPal experience, even though you're in charge of making payments-related investments at Greylock, you haven't made any because you see all the things that are potentially wrong with payments companies. So what's... Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> yes. what, are, what is the range of, of benefit and, I guess, problems that your experience has brought you, you think?
0: So one of the really important things about entrepreneurship is uh, just because something hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't happen now because when it's hmm. new and it's big. And that's frequently, it's been tried a number of times. Like, for example, right now, there's a whole bunch of people working on virtual reality. And by the way, virtual reality, they've been working on companies like that since 1990, maybe even earlier. Right. And so you're like, okay, well, all those have failed. And if you just conclude all virtual reality companies fail, then no one will do it. But actually, in fact, it's when you get to that right timing, when the the platforms are right, when the business model is right, when the market's right. And part of what you're trying to do as an entrepreneur, what I learned, is you're trying to predict usually about two to three years in advance. Your ideal circumstances where the market hasn't realized it, your average person hasn't realized it, but two to three years from now the market and the technology and the platforms will all be ready and you start running early at it so that when it starts blossoming, you're there for it. And that's part of where uh, timing can be very helpful. Now, the, the specific problem with PayPal is that payments is a very difficult thing. It's, it's, it's Most of the payments infrastructures were built decades ago. It's fundamental to all business. If you could build a payment system from scratch, you would build it all kinds of different ways than the ones that are built today, but getting them established is really hard. You have to get to... A minimum of a billion dollars of transactions to even have an interesting payments business. That's not a billion dollars of revenue, but it's a billion dollars of transactions flowing through the system. That's a lot of money. And, by the way, people are really, they don't want the payments thing to screw up. So they don't want to go with startups. They want to go with what's tried and true. They want to have it very reliable. And so, um, Knowing all of the ways that PayPal almost died in, in, in getting its creation makes me know what the checklist of is well, how are you on all these minefields? And, uh, you know, that's so I, I, I didn't invest in Square, which is obviously a mistake. I didn't invest in Stripe, which is obviously a mistake. Uh, great founders, great interesting companies. And it was just, it was my own um, PTSD from PayPal. Okay.
1: Give me your prediction on, I guess, the most, the most impactful trend that's right around the corner that we're thinking about the least.
0: So everyone's thinking about artificial intelligence, so I won't say that one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But what I'd say is what people are probably not tracking enough is the intersection of artificial intelligence and synthetic biology. So the cost of reading genomics is coming down faster than Moore's Law, and we're beginning to be able to write it with, uh, as technology known as CRISPR, Cas9, and other things. So uh, the genomic space is a deep, uh, high-vector, complex information space, but that's precisely what machine learning is for. So I think as we see the intersection of these two things, we will see a whole bunch of different things in everything from uh, new drugs, health therapeutics, uh, understanding of health, What's going on in information data sets? You'll see a whole bunch of things there and a bunch of new technologies that will probably blow our mind.
1: Huh? That's two to three years out?
0: No, maybe it's five, but it could really start within three. All
1: right. Well, Reed, I appreciate the time and our, our debate earlier with Tim O'Reilly. Uh, thanks for having me uh, a part of that. Great to sit down with you for Fort Knox. I appreciate awesome. it. Here. My thanks to Reed Hoffman. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever fine podcasts are distributed, and please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Periscope, or YouTube. I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Twitter or Facebook and search for John Fort. Hit subscribe. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.
0: Hey there, I'm Brad. I'm about to win the Tuesday night Bowling League Championship. I'm also a highway worker for the Ohio Department of Transportation. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can bowl the winning strike with my buddies. Remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down.